Welcome to Bible and Stuff, a podcast about the Bible and stuff. I'm Glenn. And I'm Tanner. And today we have a special guest on the show with us. We have Jared C. Wilson joining us. Jared, we're super excited that you're here today with us. Man, I'm just <laughs> excited to find out what is entailed in stuff. We got Bible <laughs> and <is>. stuff. <laughs> So Bible, I, yeah. I can figure that part out, but you leave a yeah. lot of room for yeah. all kinds of things and stuff. We got to have some mystery in there. We In the biz, we call that curiosity gap. Is that what it is? <laughs> yeah. In, in reality, it's just we go off on tangents and we needed something to cover that. Yeah. So. Okay. All encompassing. All right. Well, I'm, I'm excited. Yeah. We're really excited you're here. Uh, I'm just going to give a brief uh, intro. Uh, For those of you listening, Jared C. Wilson is assistant professor of pastoral ministry at Spurgeon College. He's author in residence at Midwestern Seminary and director of the Pastoral Training Center at Liberty Baptist Church. And all of that is in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, Jared is also the podcast host. Uh, He's a speaker and an author of numerous books, including the one that we're going to be talking about today, which is called Love Me Anyway, How God's Perfect Love Fills Our Deepest Longing. Uh, so Jared, yeah, I, again, that was a brief overview, but there's more to you than that. I'm sure if you want to take a second to, to give us a little bit more insight into who you are, we would love that too. No, I'm just excited to know what the podcast is about. I didn't know we were talking about love me anyway. So the intro is as <laughs> informative for me as there it was you go. for hey, your man, audience. That means a lot. If you're like, I guess I'll, I'll jump into this and I have no idea what's going on. Uh, but give us a general idea first. Uh, obviously, as Christians, we talk about love, but you kind of make the case in the book, and it seems uh, pretty evident that really we're all kind of looking for love. Uh, and so I'm curious why that is. Why are we so love-obsessed? Yeah, well, you know, part of the argument that I make in the book is that we're we're wired for this because we're made in God's image, right? God, uh, you know, we learn from, um, you know, John's first letter is love in and of his Trinitarian self. So love has existed for as long as God has existed, which is to say there is no beginning, no end. So love has always been because Father has loved Son and Son loved Father and, and so on and so forth. So then when mm-hmm. to make man in, in his image um, means to make man, at least in part, for with a capacity for love, with a wiring for love. And um, even the... You know the the relational component of creating Eve um, was an expression of that as well. That mm. we might be able to work out horizontally what we also enjoy vertically gives more glory to God. But you know, of course, the fall you know breaks that, brings a disruption. A, a, a you know the biblical word is enmity there. So now we have a distorted view of love. But the reason. It, you know, we're searching for love. You know, we're looking for love in all the wrong places for <laughs> since history began. Is because we're hardwired for it. It's um, something that we instinctively know um, is um, the highest good that we could have. People will yeah. die for love. We'll give up. We'll give up things that keep us bodily alive for this thing, love, which has no utilitarian use. Mm. That that means that there's got to be something you know, primeval uh, about it, which is, uh, in in my mind, it's because it reflects the very, you know, the very image of God. That's good. Mm. <laughs> you know, the very, the very first uh, um, spoken words 
at least that we have recorded in human history, is a love song. Adam seeing Eve for the first time, and um, you know most of our Bibles f- show the format of Hebrew poetry. At last, as bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It's a it's a it's a poetic reaction, and so love songs, which is a major theme of the book as well. Uh, every chapter title and all the subheads are are different love songs. That even the expression of love songs, which we've had since the beginning of time, come from the very first recorded human word. So this is an this is an ancient, an ancient thing because it's yeah. it's part of our soul. Yeah, um, and you you obviously, as we've said, talk a lot about love, but you use a lot of personal examples in the book. I didn't know this. Are you are you a Texas guy originally? Yeah, I'm a native Texan. Yeah. Okay. So all your exes live in Texas. It's true, but I got out of Tennessee <laughs> just in case. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. That's good. Oh, okay. Um, well, I'm in Texas now. I'm right. not a native Texan. I I grew up Oklahoman, so now it's a weird thing where it's like I'm supposed to hate this place, but I kind of yeah. like it now. It's like so. I I I like Texas. I'm glad I was born there. I have lots of friends and family there. Lots of roots there. Um, I don't get the obsession that Texans have. <laughs> uh, maybe I shouldn't say this out loud, but I like it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. this whole deal, like, I wasn't born here, but I got here as fast as I could. And all and that is just yeah. mind boggling to me. It's okay. It's not, you know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's sure. an okay place to live. I don't understand. Well, yeah. it, it depends widely on which part of Texas you're in. That is true as that, well. Yeah. There's all the way from like major metropolitan area to middle of no, about as middle of nowhere as you can get. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I, yeah. And I thought this is a complete aside, but I thought uh, surely when we moved to Texas, like the whole everything's bigger than Texas. Like I figured, like that's all a little bit of a caricature, right? Yeah. And it's not. It's not. <laughs> Where do you live? Where do you live in Texas? I live in the Denton area, so it's like okay. northwest of Dallas. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, like radio commercials are like they lean into it hard. Like it's like this is really a selling point for us. It, Texas yeah, is a, awesome. It's a point of pride. Texas pride. I mean, yeah. yeah. You just don't talk about yeah. you need a Tennessee to bail you out when it, when the, when it came time for, <laughs> came time to go to battle. Uh, you know, hey, like I said, I'm Oklahoma. I'm still priding myself on the fact that we we won the Red River dispute there. Yeah. So we, I we mean, got Texas to keep that. is objectively better than Oklahoma, but in terms of the- yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I can't admit that uh, out loud, but his mom I'll, is listening. Okay. I'll let yeah. it stand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Glenn, okay, so where are you, Glenn? Yeah, sorry, I'm up in New Hampshire. All I was right. getting all excited hey, when New you were England talking about boy. Brady. Let me tell you who no. should be proud uh, no. because everything's better in New England. I, I promise oh. you. I say this as a native Texan. New England's the best. <laughs> New England is the best. Oh, you may be the, the first person to. Tanner, the grass is better in New England. And, and I, I don't mean marijuana. I mean, like, the grass you walk on. I don't know anything about the marijuana, but the the grass that you walk on is mossier. It's it's like if, yeah, it's it's uh, the Garden of Eden, and Texas is thorn and thistles, man. It's the it's exile. Yeah. It's you really mossy. Hurt my case here cause- it's verdant. It has. There's magic in the air. The woods of New England are Narnian, yeah. and mm. it, it it's it's better. Oh, I love yeah. it. 
Yeah. All right. This is, I'll keep that. In mind. This is the stuff I give Glenn so much, so much crap yeah. about living in New Hampshire. Uh, so he's very happy right now that you have come on and defended his <laughs> his good name. Um, but anyway, yeah. So back to the the book. I, there is kind of this slightly paradoxical thing in that we're all looking for love, but as you, I think, rightly point out, a lot of us feel unlovable. Like the very deep down, we kind of feel like maybe it's not actually possible for us, or right. at the very least that the people around us are really just kind of pretending. Uh, and so I'm curious, why, like, explain that to me. How are both of those true, and why do we feel that so deeply sometimes? Well, it's the curse. It's the, it's the, it's the idea, first yeah. of all, uh, because we're made in God's image, and, and we still are. That doesn't go away. That doesn't dissipate after the fall. Mm-hmm. But in a way, it's broken. It's a, it's disordered inside of us because of the the um, indwelling sin and the nature mm. of the flesh. So now we're at we're in a way um, at cross purposes with our design, and so we have deep down we know we ha- we um, need to be loved, but all of our expressions or attempts at love don't satisfy. So mm-hmm. we'll look for love in all sorts of things. And, of course, relationships is the number one place we go. But every idolatry that we, you know, you know, find ourselves committed to, every idolatry we engage in, whether it's, you know, food or money or whatever it is, is still an attempt at trying to soothe this divine ache inside of us or this eternal ache in, in inside yeah. of us. So when we feel unlovable, it's really... Um, our soul kind of communicating the message that you you were made for love. You were made not just to love, but to be loved. And we can never find that satisfied, that, that itch scratched, you know, until we find our wholeness in Christ. And, and mm-hmm. even then we still struggle because of, because of the flesh. We won't until the, you know, the second coming and, and, at which point the you know King Jesus consummates his kingdom and eradicates sin and brokenness and and the flesh forever, uh, and we have new bodies and we are redeemed finally. We'll still even as believers have this war inside of us of we know that Christ brings satisfaction and when we're in tune with that we mm-hmm. you know understand this the right way we feel it, but when we're when we take our eyes off of him, we begin to wonder and um, question and, you know, da- it's it's like, you know, you take your eyes off Jesus, you begin to sink beneath the waves of your circumstances and your your past and all the things that kind of, you know, bubble up to crowd out the feeling of love inside of us. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I, I forget who it is. Uh, maybe it was Rockefeller. I believe at one point in an interview, they were asking him, like, uh, when when will you have enough money? And he said something to the effect of, well, just a little bit more. Right. And that was like the continued thought is like, no matter how much of these earthly things that we're, we're putting or investing ourselves into, we're always longing for a little bit more. Um, yeah. And, and I know and that's not exactly what you're saying, but no, it's it, in that it, same vein. It is kind of. But even when some of those folks achieve right i think it's attributed to jim carrey a couple years ago where he said something like i wish everyone could get you know everything that they always wanted or be as you know rich and famous and everything that they always wanted so they could see it's not the answer (laughs) you know yeah at at one point he was 
you know, the highest paid actor in, in movies and of course is world famous and and he he discovered he didn't discover the answer, but he discovered what wasn't by getting, you know, his wildest dreams coming true. You know, even Tom Brady, we we're talking about this, you know, talking about him before the before we started recording his 60 minutes interview after ring three. So he only had three, he only had three rings in and he was saying to Steve Croft, something like, I, I keep thinking, you know, um, you know, that, you know, that this has to be it. And, and, but I know that there's more, there's gotta be something else out there. This isn't essentially, this isn't doing what I thought it would do in my soul. And Croft says, well, what's the answer? And he says, I wish I knew. And and maybe in the back of his mind, it was another ring and then another ring. <laughs> I need then, to have enough to fill both hands. Right. And then well, maybe yeah. what? <laughs> but at some point, he's got to have discovered, oh, this isn't, yeah. this, this doesn't do for me what I thought it did. So even people who don't know Jesus feel often that emptiness of getting all those things that they wanted a little bit more and a little bit more. And realize, okay, this can't be it. So certainly Christians should be uh, super in tune with that. We certainly fall into that pattern of thinking, you know, even on a daily basis. Um, But we we at least know the answer. The reason Mm -hmm. this isn't satisfying the way I thought it would is because only Jesus satisfies. Yeah, and it's so the book is structured um, by looking at 1 Corinthians 13, right? And you're kind of walking through that passage with each chapter. And so, in a way, you're you're addressing the broken ways in which we see love and kind of applying the the biblical Christian way of which uh, that Jesus shows his love. Uh, And so I want to kind of maybe pull a couple of those big ideas out. Uh, The first one being, uh, I I believe it's in chapter two. You, there's a quote in there that says love is patient because love gives people space to be themselves. If you love someone, you give them room to breathe. And I mean, essentially, the question is, okay, explain this, <laughs> explain this, because I think I know I know what you're getting at, um, and of course, you explain it more thoroughly in the chapter. But it, I, I think it's important to talk about because I'm sitting here going, how many years of marriage did it take me to start to figure that out? Because it was a few. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the the problem is because of sin, because of our self, because of the the inward bent or self direction of 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 the flesh in which we mm-hmm. situate ourselves at the center of the universe make ourselves or think of ourselves as the 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 star of the movie of life mm-hmm. and everyone else is a supporting character we tend to relate to each other even people who are who are close even people who are one flesh with us we um look at them as suppliers of our need or you know meters of our need and mm-hmm. therefore, we kind of engage in a kind of relational legalism where my love, my reaction, my feelings towards you are based on what you do for me. Yeah. So if, if you're not doing what I, what I want you to do, if you're, not, if you're not making me feel how I want, you to, how I want to feel, um, if you're not meeting my needs, then we begin to see that my love is actually conditional. <laughs> and a lot of us go into marriage... We don't think we're doing this because a lot of the stuff is unspoken, and sometimes we're we're even unaware of it because of our. Um, it's just how we've been conditioned by our upbringing, or just our own, in particular, you know, just our own wiring. 
And then there's that moment where where the marriage gets real. Suddenly you realize who it is actually you're married to, right? Um, which which you can't fully know until you're married yeah. to them. Even like you can know someone really well, and 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 preferably you do before you marry them. But you won't yeah. know them as well as you do after you're married. Right. Yeah. They're, they're, Not well enough to know that I've been putting the dishes in the dishwasher the wrong way. Right. Well, sometimes, <laughs> you know, maybe you could discover that. But like, I, I, I'll say like, until your wife is like seeing your skid marks, right? Until, <laughs> until you hear one another pass gas or yeah. you see one another sick or... <laughs> right, it gets it gets real, right. and, and I'm being humorous, but but there's a point at which like, okay, I'm actually this is the person, not the date version of the person, not yeah. the the best. Yeah. You know, we see each other at at a realist. That's when we discover if we actually really love each other, or if it was just how you made me feel, how you know, um, what I expect you to do for me. So to say, love is patient means at least in part not just loving what somebody does for you but loving who they are at, mm-hmm. as they are it doesn't mean that you love their sin it doesn't mean that you love their you know their yeah. um their bad habits or bad behaviors or anything but it means that you love them the way that you hope that they love you which is to say the the you know the the real version of yourself mm-hmm. the messy yeah. version and and the reason that we do that is because that's how god loves us you know, yeah. he doesn't love the best version of us or the the cleaned up version or the fake version or the, the, the version with makeup on. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, at the right mm-hmm. time, he died for the, un, you know, Christ died for the ungodly. So, it was, you know, he, he, he loves the the real us. And so that's kind of what I'm getting at there is, is giving people space uh, to be who they actually are and not putting expectations or conditions on them that I'll, I'll love you so long as you're who I, you know, you're performing according to my standards. Yeah. It, you know, now that you, I'm literally realizing this as you say it, I mean, I, I've kind of known the pieces, but I'm, I'm putting it together, which is, I think part of the reason that was a uh, hurdle that took me a while to, to start to get over in marriage of not wanting to change my wife or make her to what maybe I think she should be because it, it you know, is uh, selfish, um, is misunderstanding how God loved me. Even though I knew it's grace and it's not based on works, it, it took a, it's taken a long time and it's still a process of breaking out of functionally trying to earn God's love, right? Trying to be who I think he wants me to be in order to feel more loved. And as I have a better understanding of that, I feel more freedom and I'm more motivated to to provide that same kind of love for my wife and say, you know, this is who she is and celebrate the great things of that that aren't the way that I would have picked them or made them or whatever. Yeah. And and even if we're addressing things in our friends or or even our spouse or others that that need to change negative behaviors unhealthy habits th- things like that we express them as a means of concern for them not simply because it makes us uncomfortable yeah. or because it does something for us so helping people change has to be about loving them and wanting them to flourish Wanting them to grow in Christ likeness, wanting them to um, wanting them to be happy, 
even, we could say, above, I need you to do this because it's driving me crazy. Well, <laughs> it, it probably is driving you crazy, or it probably is irritating you, and it probably is bothering you. But now when I'm bringing the law to bear in such a way that I'm communicating, I need you to do this because of how it affects me, when that shouldn't, you know, it's not like that's not a concern or you shouldn't have that concern. But that needs to be secondary to, I actually love you and I want the best for you. And I want you to be flourishing. I want you to be healthy. I want you to be experiencing the joy of Christ that comes from, you know, X, Y, or Z. It's it, it's about my concern for you. And even just the way that we frame that, if we have that motivation, it comes out in more gracious ways. It comes out in more loving ways and, and will feel, even though you're bringing in a way imperatives to the situation, it can feel more like it has the, 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 you know, the flavor of indicative to it. It has a, you know, more grace to it. Can we, uh, yeah. can we like try to maybe put an example around that? Cause uh, sometimes I think that's easier to see how we do that practically than it is other times. So I want to take maybe a silly example, but one that I hear a lot, like in reality is like, Hey, my husband or my, or my wife like doesn't hang their towel up. They leave it in the bathroom floor or whatever. So I, I see exactly what you're saying of like, I want you to stop this because it drives me nuts is maybe not the best approach, <laughs> but I'm curious, like if, if you had a couple sitting in front of you, uh, and th- that was like one of the things they brought up. Like, it's just these little things that drive me nuts. Like, how do you counsel them to maybe to not take that <laughs> approach we so often take and take a more helpful one? Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, if it, that, if that's an isolated thing, my counsel would be to the person irritated to just kind of get over it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I guess that can be annoying, but is it? Is that really like that's the thing that's irritating? Now, if it's part of a larger pattern of just disregard yeah. of sloppiness of lack of care of then we're talk then we can talk about that big picture and now mm-hmm. we're talking about unhealthy habits that bleed into other areas of life and i would speak to the person not about the towel per se but just to say yeah um you know how how is uh, the way you're living life affecting you what is your general experience of, of going through life do you feel often harried do you feel often uh, disorganized to a point of feeling overwhelmed? Is it If it's part of a larger pattern, someone is just messy or careless in general, they often lead a scattered, uh, mm-hmm. they feel overwhelmed or hurried or, or something like that. If it's just an isolated, this is like the only thing. Yeah. You know, I think you could say, <laughs> if I'm speaking just to them apart from their spouse, so they're not both in the room, I would say, look, yeah. you're, you're tempting your wife to irritation through this very simple thing, you know, it, it, if you be mindful of this, this would actually be in your best interest to have a happy wife, right? Um, you yeah. can pick up your towel. If I'm speaking to her and it's just this one thing, I think I would say, could you maybe overlook, like if this is the big, if this is the complaint you have, mm-hmm. it, it would be better for him to do this. I, I agree. But if this is it, is this maybe a call to you to learn how to be a forgiving person? Is this... Yeah. Um, but if it's part of a larger pattern of things, mm-hmm. um, I, I think you speak to that, that larger pattern and, and you speak to, in, in a way, to the person, um, not out of your own irritation, but speak to what may be the root cause of not listening well, maybe if that's the problem, um, yeah. to the root cause of being 
hurried or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and sometimes it's um, in things like that. I mean, that seems like such a simple yet common sure. issue. Sometimes it's a matter of upbringing, how we've been discipled over time just through, um, you know, we're in a way catechized by the experience of our upbringing. So yeah. if I spend 18 years in a home where dad throws his stuff wherever and and everyone else does too because mom picks it all up without complaining, at least not to us, right. <laughs> then yeah. we think that's how – that's normal. That's how life is. Um, You know, especially if, if you know – if if she's if, if if mom does that in a way happily, if she just feels like this is my job or something, um, and she may legitimately feel useful in doing those sorts of things, well, I'm going to come out into my marriage thinking this is normal, and we bring two different normals into the and and maybe neither one of them is really wrong per se. They're just what our own normals are, and I have got to adjust to the new normal. I've got to learn to to leave and cleave, which means the old normal can't be the new normal. But sometimes those the old normal is so ingrained, it's just harder to to come out of that because you've had again eighteen years or however long of of you know swimming in that environment, and that cannot help mm. but shape you. Yeah, I think that's all really helpful. Thanks for letting me put you on the on the counseling spot there. But I think sometimes it is a simple, just like hey, like chill out. Sometimes it is exact. I remember uh, that being a huge thing that I had to wrestle with, that or we had to wrestle with the first two years of our marriage, is realizing you have a certain way of doing things. I have a certain way of doing things. We both kind of secretly think ours is better, and figuring out that that's not really the case. They're just yeah. different, and we need to figure out what works for us together. Uh, but then that third category of sometimes the problem isn't the problem. Sometimes you're mad about the towel, but yeah. you're actually mad about something that's much bigger that we can actually address in a healthy well, way. Well, and that's what I think, to. like seeing the bigger pattern, because the towel yeah. isn't the towel. It's a carelessness. <laughs> it's a presumption that I'll, yeah. I'm going to take care of it. And so you can't be bothered to put it where it would make it easier for me to, you know, if, the, if all the clothes are in the hamper, then I don't have to gather everything up from all around the house or all over the floor. So it's not really about just that towel. If it was a one-time incident, it would be no big deal. But a pattern of behavior that speaks to the fact that you're not listening, you're not considerate, you're not, those bleed into other areas, which definitely should be addressed, you know. I'm glad we're doing marriage counseling now. We're doing some good uh, relational <laughs> but stuff. The, the Anybody else with secret issues? title, <laughs> the secret title of our podcast is "Insert Guest's Name Fixes Our Life." Okay, uh, so <laughs> we we have this selfish underpinning of like, how can we get this person to to help us get our stuff together? But anyway. <laughs> noticed but the whole time we've been doing this podcast we've been in a coffee shop it's crazy the amount of editing that we can do to drown out all of these crazy noises that you hear and just hear our voices but yeah tanner is right we're in a coffee shop and man does it smell good in here yeah we're just taking a quick break as this nice lady pours us some more coffee i mean you can hear them grinding some new beans in the back it's it's a good place to do it it's great. And as you've probably noticed, Tanner and I have lowered ourselves to the point where we need to ask for money, <laughs> both in a coffee shop and virtually, to uh, support this podcast. Hey, busking is a perfectly fine thing to do. But 
for people like you who aren't here in the moment, we have to give you another option, which is a virtual tip jar. So if you want to support us, you want us to be able to keep making episodes like this one, then you can check out the link in the description and drop us a few bucks, just like the people here. I mean, the study group over there was nice enough to contribute. Even the guy playing guitar busking himself over in the corner. Super, super cool dude. We, we must be the most annoying people in here. This guy's trying to play guitar and we're doing a podcast over him. But, you know, we fit in wherever we go. And who knows where you'll see us next week. I mean, these are all good points for marriage. Definitely helpful things that I'm going to be processing consistently. But also, I just feel like our friendships and relationships we have with people in general. I mean, obviously, it's not going to be a towel every time. But there are things that we or they may habitually do that we're kind of like, okay, there's, there's something bigger here. Um, and so I, I'm kind of digressing from the question I was going to ask, but when we <laughs> are interacting with maybe our, our friends or, or people who are not a part of the faith, what, what can our love look like in those instances? How can we best show uh, God's love if, if somebody is not maybe in the same place that we are uh, in this understanding that uh, of who God is and, and the love that he's shown to us, what are some practical ways that we could, we could work that into those relationships too? Yeah. Well, I think in some way, try taking care to communicate that your love for them is not contingent on them agreeing with you or, um, you know, even believing like you believe that we ultimately hope that, and that is a central concern because we care about their soul. But mm. unbelievers in particular have a very uh, high sensitivity towards, I guess not all, but I think generally speaking, it's very common for unbelievers with believing friends. They have a high sensitivity to feeling like a project or feeling like the, your feelings toward them are are solely channeled towards them becoming a Christian or becoming. Yeah. Yeah. And what's difficult about that is that's the most important thing to know Christ is the most important thing. And so it, it's disingenuous for a Christian friend to say, I don't care if you, become, <laughs> um, you know, we should not say that because we do care about it, but trying to communicate in such a way that even if you don't make this decision, I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to be your friend. I'm not going to walk away from you. Actually, and, and that's authentic. That actually serves a more uh, evangelistic purpose than somehow, you know, even unintentionally communicating that my concern for you is only dependent on you embracing my religion or embracing my faith, because that feels conditional to them, which undercuts yeah. the message of grace. Actually, so I mean, this probably works. It's it it's it's you know, way out in a thousand different ways, but making sure that when somebody rejects it, you know, you're trying to have a spiritual conversation, they don't want anything, you know, to do with it. Um, you know, you present the gospel to them, they don't believe. Um, making sure that when they, re- when they reject or indicate a rejection that you don't reject them. Yeah. Um, uh, mm-hmm. I think is really, is really important. You know, well, I don't want anything to do with you. Well, now they just know you were just their friend as 
you know, part of a religious project of some kind and you didn't actually love them. Yeah. Uh, I think that leads well into one of the other things you talk about in the book, um, which is essentially love is self-sacrificial. It's not selfish, it's selfless. Uh, And one of the quotes you have is you say, most of us are prepared to love others only up to the point where it actually begins or begins to actually cost us. Uh, I I taught it, uh, taught on Galatians 6 recently at our church with the bear one and bear one another's burdens passage. And that seems really evident in that passage too, where uh, he's kind of calling out people who would rather just kind of hold you to a set of rules to, to kind of get their glory uh, by that way, as opposed to being people who uh, will disadvantage themselves to help an, another person. Um, so how, how can we, how can we live that out as well? I, I like that you're starting in a place of non-conditional, but then how do we even work at, at giving ourselves to others? Yeah, well, let's, you know, think about it in the, in the context of the church, which so much of the New Testament and its dealings with love are, are not about romantic relationships. I mean, you know, certainly there's passages mm-hmm. about marriage and so forth, but the, the vast majority of the passages related to interrelational love um, have to do with the, the church, about the one another's. So today yeah. it's very common, especially in the West, because we have so many more options and different flavors to choose from. Um, and experience, even within churches, sometimes different experiences that you can pick. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very common to experience church according to our tastes and preferences and and our desires. And therefore, I go to church based on what it does for me, how it makes me feel. So we end up saying things like, I, I didn't feel like that was a very worshipful service. Well, w- why would you say that? I guess there's some objective things like you're not the songs aren't about God, maybe, or um, you know, the the you know, it's you know, it's poor content or poor theology. But if we're just talking about the vibe, or like y- you bring that, right? It's not about you know, the worship experience is about exalting God, not about you experiencing some yeah. kind of feeling. Um, it's it's good when we feel our emotions uh, um, activated when we exalt God because we're whole people, and, and certainly that involves our emotions. But to judge a worship experience based on how it felt or, you know, the, you know, the feeling of worship. Well, that's a, a sign that we're the center, that we're the ones being worshiped actually. And so even just the, the idea so, you know, even in small groups going to, you know, having friendships in the church, all these sorts of things, when those are all based on how others fit us, how they, you know, suit us or complement us or are arranged around us, those are all ways of kind of, having the cheapest church experience that we can have. It's it's consumeristic, but at the same time very low value because it's all built around my own my own values, my own preferences, my own consumer tastes. And the yeah. way you kind of work against that is to show up and say, I'm here for them, not them for me. Now in a, mm-hmm. in 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 a place of beauty in 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 a lot of churches, the the real dazzling spirit of grace shows up when everyone is saying that, you know, yeah. or, or, the, or, the, or the majority of people are showing up going, I'm here for them, not them for me. And now we're in this kind of beautiful Romans 12, 10, you know, dance of outdoing one another, you know, showing honor, right? Like that's the ideal. We're each trying to outdo one another with showing grace to each other. But when we all show up with, you're here for me, 
now it's not a dance anymore. It's a, you know, it's, 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 it's a boxing match of our tastes and preferences. And um, (laughs) so even just sort of weighing, you know, I tweeted something this past week about people who send complaint emails to their pastors. And of course I had a bunch of people angry with me for, you know, so I should never, you know, confront my, you know, toxic leader, which is, wasn't even the point of any, you know, it's just the idea of the, you know, the, the little pref, the little nitpicks, right? The kind of the things where any just one isolated would be no big deal for a pastor with thick skin. But you have a steady drip of these things from multiple people, and it's just eroding, um, mm-hmm. you know, eroding a pastor's spirit. And that comes from a people who want the church organized around their preferences, I'm talking again about nitpicks. I'm not talking about there's false teaching or there's some kind of unrepentant sin. I'm talking about, I wish this was more like this, or I wish this was less like that. And that's all because of my own, my own preferences or my own opinions. Well, when you have a bunch of people doing that, you end up with a, an almost a Babel experience, not a Pentecost church where we uh, are in sync and hearing each other in our own, in, in our own languages but a Babel church where we're all at odds and discordant and we don't understand or, or empathize or connect with each other. Cause we're all trying to build a name for ourselves through the, mm-hmm. you know, through the church experience. I, uh, I saw that tweet and I really appreciated, uh, Eric <laughs> the, Schumacher's response, which was, uh, I can't believe this tweet wasn't written with the nuance of a full length book <laughs> that I could give a one star review because I right. thought it was about something else. Right. <laughs> and I mean, I even said uh, like, I mean, social media is where reading comprehension goes to die. I, I even put things <laughs> like, I didn't even say, don't do it. I said, maybe think about not sending it. Like if you have yeah. a. And but that doesn't matter. You're suggesting yeah. that people shouldn't send every complaint they have to the pastor, and there are people out there that they li- the people on social media who live to complain are the people who send the complaining emails to their pastor, yeah. and they didn't like the suggestion that they shouldn't do that. So, so they aired their complaint to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. It's very efficient because I, I just take it and I file it right in the uh, in the trash can and. <laughs> Yeah, the 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 cycle of life is complete. <laughs> Move on with your life. Yeah. Um. Well, so I think this brings up one other thing I wanted to hit, which was where we're entering into these relationships, we're being self sacrificial. Hopefully, other people are doing the same, and we end up with this beautiful community that is the body of Christ. Um. But I and you, you talk about this in the book. I kind of recently had a realization of. I'm not experiencing the things I want to in the community of the church because I had developed this fear of vulnerability through past experiences or whatnot. And I I particularly included, I think this may be a slightly different idea of being a project than what you just referenced earlier, but uh, there's a quote where he said, we don't want to become someone's project because if I tell people about this or whatever it is you're struggling with, we think then they're going to feel like they have to look after me and I'll become frustrating and draining to them, which I was like, oh, this is the story of my life, Jared. Uh, <laughs> I do not, you know, that's a big reason why I'll hold back is because I don't want that person to think, well, yeah. you know, Tanner's kind of sensitive around this or Tanner can't maybe handle this. Uh, but I realize I'm actually withholding something from myself. And well, uh, maybe you can explain it better, but uh, that's not to say that sometimes people won't hurt you. Sometimes people right. won't take advantage of the vulnerability. But if we don't even cross that 
that spot where we're kind of stopping ourselves from ever even having the possibility of experiencing r- real love. Uh, so what would you say to someone like me who kind of finds himself in that predicament and, and they want to figure out how to get out of it? Yeah, I think the first thing I would say is, um, you know, as sometimes that comes from a, a place of, of real experience, you know, um, mm-hmm. some of the people most reluctant to open up or to confess sin or just to share their real selves with people in the church, the reason they don't do that is because they've done it before and it blew up in their face. They were they yeah. were rejected. They were shamed. They got burned in some way, gossiped about something. So they have a very real reason or, or a very um, understandable reason to kind of close up. I like, I won't make that mistake again. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's completely understandable. Um, you know, so that's the first thing I would say is, is you're not crazy to have this reluctance to that. Yet at the same time, we're still called to, um, to take that risk. Now we may be in places where it's communicated very clearly. This is not the place to do that. And you have a choice then. Do I, do I need to go to a place where I can do that? Or do I want to be the one who kind of pioneers a changing of the, of the climate of this church? And now it's even riskier. Yeah. But two things I would say. Number one, um, in many occasions, not opening up with others and being real with others is a failure to love them because we're not trusting them. We're not thinking the best of them, Right. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 mm-hmm. says, we believe all things, hope all things. So when I'm afraid of being somebody's project, what I'm actually saying is, um, I don't, um, I think the worst of you. I think yeah. you're going to treat me in, in a less than ideal way. And this is, yeah. this is really about me not. So I, you know, I thought about this in the last few years with, um, with a friend of mine. So I was going through a really difficult time and, you know, there's a, a, a close friend of mine that I knew could help me, but I didn't want to burden him. Um, I didn't want to put anything on him. It wasn't like I thought he would respond poorly. I just didn't want him to ha- to to have this on his list of things to think about. Right? I didn't. I didn't want to yep. burden him with the problem of me. Mm-hmm. And then I got to thinking, gosh, if I don't if I don't get help with this situation, um, if I, if the roles were reversed. And he was in my situation, and he and he had that thought about me. I I would be I would be hurt that he didn't think enough of me to reach out and say, Jared, I need help. Because as his yeah. friend, I would have helped him. I would have added him to my list, so to speak, or you know whatever it was, because I love him and care about him. But I wasn't thinking that way about him. I wasn't um, showing him honor and dignity. It, it was in a way. It was yeah. self. It was self protection. And a failure to love him. So that's the first thing I would say. The biblical thing, like on top of that, more importantly, in First John chapter one, we are told to walk in the light as he is in the light. And and if we do not do that, we don't have fellowship with one another, which is a really interesting connection that John makes. Um, because the obvious connection is if we're not walking in the light as Christ is in the light, as Christ is the light, we don't have fellowship with him. The vertical, and that makes that makes total obvious sense. But John says, if we don't walk in the light as he is in the light, we don't have fellowship with each other. That's really fascinating because what, and and I think what he's saying is, if we are not 
honest, confessional, transparent. The, the, the main thrust of the passage is, is, is essentially um, whether you have sin, don't have sin. So I think it's about the confessional sense. But even just our, our authentic selves, I think, is, is a piece of that. Not putting on the religious makeup when we go to church, those sorts of things. Yeah. It, mm-hmm. if, if, we, if we do that, if we put on the religious makeup, if we just send, you know, church version of me out when it's time to, you know, to do church— I don't actually have fellowship with other people's real selves, nor are they with my real self. We just have a pretend fellowship. It's just the best version of ourselves that we send out, um, yeah. and and we don't really even know each other. So it's not even real. The whole thing is a, a facade. It's the whole thing is a pretense. So John's saying, "Hey, you walk in the light, so you can actually experience being known and know and and knowing others, which is a reflection of of God's love for us." Loving our real selves, not the, you know, fake selves. Um, in life together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has some. He says some wonderful things about this, and he speaks to the solitude, the loneliness of being a part of a church community but not being known. Yeah. So you're not you're not alone, but he says there's almost no greater loneliness than to be not known in a fellowship. Yeah. And he says the real breakthrough yeah. to fellowship does not occur. Uh, let me see if I can get his wording right. He says, because we know each other as devout persons, but not as sinners. Mm. Right? The, the, the fellowship does not permit a sinner to be, <laughs> you know, to be found among that. We, we only relate to each other as religious people and not as sinners. Mm. So part of it may come, brother, like for those who think that I've done it before and I got burned. I don't know that I'm in a place, you know, a place that's safe to be a sinner. But I, I'm committed and called here, and if I'm committed and called here, I, I want to be known, and I and I want to know. Therefore, I'm going to actually take the risk to change the climate of this place by being someone who is confessional and transparent, and maybe disrupt this facade that we call church. Just by doing that, not in a presumptuous way, everyone orient around me, like become the emotional black hole of the community group, you know, that, you know, the pity party kind of person. We all know that guy or that girl. Uh, But in a way to say, I'm going to live authentically and uh, because I want to be known, it's not enough for me to to play church. And, And if enough people do that, it can begin to change the culture of a church, actually. Yeah, that's. That was a lot of good insight. I mean, I, I would say, I mean, leaders have to set the tone for that as well. So how yeah, yeah. how do you know if a place is a, is a safe place for sinners? An unsafe place for sin, but a safe place for sinners. Leaders have to be confessional themselves. Now, you're not saying every little yeah. thing to every person, but appropriately transparent, um, hum, you know, really embracing the humility of of, of sharing when you messed up of confessing sin, um, all those sorts of things, that begins to set the tone because it's one thing if a leader says, we're going to be a real confessional place. All right, you guys, confess your sins, right? That's different than <laughs> actually confessing sin and actually saying, oh, if, well, if he did it, it gives permission. It creates a safety yeah. when, when the leaders will show vulnerability that way. Um, okay, I think I think we'll take this as the last one as we kind of wrap up. We've talked about quite a few ways we can do this already but um one thing you obviously do a great job in the book of that we maybe skipped over in some ways here because our audience is christian um is is you 
continually tie it back to Jesus, right? Our example for all the stuff, and really, not just the example, but really the only reason we can even do it is because of, we've experienced, because we've loved, yeah. been loved, then we can love. Uh, but I'm curious, as you're writing, uh, is there any aspect of God's love that you feel like maybe in this time period, time frame, we particularly struggle with understanding and maybe can even get in our own way on being able to experience the love of Christ? Well, I, I just I think maybe it's just an aspect of the relational legalism thing where we have a we have a zeal for truth, maybe, or correct doctrine, which is important. But when you have um, tr- truth without grace or truth without love, right? Speaking the truth without love. Or like Paul says in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, if I have all knowledge, if I speak with the tongues of angels, if I have faith even to move mountains, but I don't have love, he doesn't say I have nothing. He says I am nothing, which is even deeper and a deeper issue of substance and, 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 and identity. And we live in an age, I think, where um, in the, you know, the church world in particular, at least large portions of it, um, we 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 judge each other according to tribal identifiers, and um, I, I would say even a, um, secondary tertiary doctrines. We we fail to do appropriate theological triage, and we conflate, we push second and 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 third tier doctrines into the primary because we have a love for doctrine and a love for truth and. Maybe we would even say a love for holiness or something like that. And it actually suffocates our, our love for others because we need others to perform or to believe exactly like we do. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if that quite answers the question, but that's sort of what I, I would think about is, you know, God has a is jealous for his name. He's jealous for his holiness. Um. And so there's a there's a shade of truth to it. It's not the answer isn't to have zero interest in doctrine, or to not care about right. a, you know to not care about holiness or something like that. But when we elevate a concern of that over love for people, um, it, that actually becomes a kind of legalism, and it actually doesn't accurately reflect the heart of God. Um, yeah. You know who loves who 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 sent His Son to die for us while we were sinners. And who, at any given day for the you know the life of the believer, I, I don't care how smart you are, how well you know your Bible, your theology is not as good as Jesus's. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, you know, and and you and certainly, no one's perfect, and yet, you know, every day we are falling short of His glory in some way. But there's not a day that God is saying, "That's it, I'm done," or or or. Here's the suboptimal level of love I'm going to give you today based on, you know, the, the level of achievement you've unlocked or, or whatever. No, the yeah. fullness of his son is given to us uh, at the moment of conversion, never abating, never diminishing. It is full force, a gale of grace every single day uh, with no retrieval, uh, with no retreat. And... That is the holy God's disposition towards gross nitwits like us. Therefore, <laughs> yeah. on what basis do we treat each other like such garbage the way we often do? 
Preach it. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> oh, Jerry, uh, we're, we're kind of coming to the end here. And so before we go, I want to make sure that people who are listening today, um, uh, where, where can they go to, to find more from you it, uh, as far as like social or, or we, we talked about the book today. Do you have more things coming out? Like what, what can people do to, to stay aware of, of what you're doing? Uh, yeah, if you just go to jaredcwilson.com, which is my website, there's links to everything. So I've got a, a book page there that lists all my books, uh, including some that are forthcoming. Um, and my social links are there. So you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram via that site. My speaking schedule is on there as well. So if someone is, uh, you know, wants to see if I'm coming near to them to do a conference or something and a booking page. If someone's interested in having me speak at a conference or something or, or their church. Um, so it's, it's kind of a one-stop shop, jaredcwilson.com. Awesome. Yeah. Beautiful. They should, they should follow you on Twitter and harass you anytime you tweet something. Sure. Uh, <laughs> go on the mute list. That's, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right, Jared, we really appreciate you coming on today. Yeah. Thank you, brothers. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Guys, like he said, if you want to learn more about uh, who Jared is and what he's doing, follow him. Uh, you can go right to his website, jaredcwilson.com, and do all of that there. And Tanner, what if people want to continue to get to know us? What do we do? Sure. As always, you can follow us on social media as well. That's Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Bible and Stuff. You can always reach out to us directly as well to let us know what you think at hello at bibleandstuff.com. And if you want to help out the show... Throw us a tip in the tip jar. You can find that in the description below this episode and whatever uh, app you're listening in. Or go to that same app and leave us a rating and review and let, it, let people know what you think. Awesome. Guys, we hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll catch you next time. Peace. The Bible and Stuff podcast is a production of Bible and Stuff. We do more than just podcasts, so if you want to know more about something we've covered on the show, just visit our website at BibleAndStuff.com. Our show is hosted by Tanner Britt and Glenn Brand, and our theme music is by The Sing Team. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.